Think about the last time you gave yourself an excuse not to plan an adventure or not to go on an adventure. And then listen to this writer coming up. 74 years young, full of energy and excitement for the next adventure with no end in sight. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Hey, just a quick note before we get going. Our advertisers and your support make this show possible. It's just the two of us here at Adventure Rider Radio, myself and Elizabeth. It's our full-time job, but it's a labor of love. We love producing ARR and RAW because we hear from so many listeners about how it's affected them in a good way. And because we take great pride in the show, we only accept advertisers that are relevant and that provide what we feel are quality products and services, most of which we've tried and experienced ourselves. When we recommend something to you, we feel like we're telling a friend. So if you're in the market for something, please consider the companies that help make this possible. And when you do, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Max BMW has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got all kinds of parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door. The website, maxbmw.com. Also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free to sign up for. Again, the website, maxbmw.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, making American-made heavy-duty innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using the strapping system. GreenChiliADV.com Hi, I'm Sam Manning. I'm Phil. Ted Simons. Austin Ben. Cat 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 Nathan Johnson. Thank you. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. Turning 74 years young next week, Linda Butherstone Bick is full of energy and excitement for her next adventure, and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. After being a rider for over 50 years with an incredibly easygoing attitude, she recognizes that things change as she ages, and she has no issues with downsizing her motorcycle to keep on riding, other than it doesn't go as fast as she'd like. She's done a lot of traveling to a lot of continents, most of which has been to Malaysia, but she's got plans for another trip in the works right now. And while her trips might not be as long as they were in her younger years, she's still going strong on shorter adventures. And her views on riding and travel just might help you become a better traveler. Okay, well, I'm Linda Boo-the-Stone-Beck. Some people know me as one, some people know me as the other, so I use both. But I've been motorcycling for about 50, 55 years now, I think. I must be getting up to 55 years. And uh, that's my um, preferred method of, of adventuring. Linda, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Nice to be here. 55 years. That's a, that's a lot of adventuring. Mm, it is. 
And what got you onto the bike to begin with? What brought me onto bikes yeah. to begin with? Um, well, I lived in an area in the south of England um, where motorcycling was very popular because it was in the 60s. Nearly all my friends had motorbikes. And um, my sister went was going out with a guy from a local motorbike club. And I thought oh, I'd go up and, and see um, what, it, what it was like. So, and I actually had a car that was a three-wheeler, which was gave me a motorcycle license. And um, so I was already, you know, ahead. I could, I could ride a bike if I wanted to. So I went up there and I joined this club. And we, at those, in those days, the guys did any, everything. They did um, trials, scrambles, uh, road racing, what you'd call motocross, you know, which we call scrambling. And, um, and then touring a, Overseas, we had links with people in Germany, other motorcyclists in Germany, and we'd go on these rallies um, on the continent, you know, because there was so, in those days, there was so much of the motorcycle rallies. Um, and we'd, we'd go and visit other people in, in other countries. And that's what I found absolutely amazing uh, to, to, to meet other people in different cultures. And even if you couldn't speak their language, you still had a connection through motorcycling. Uh, and I was just fascinated. So that's what started me off going going away um, overseas by myself. And you're you're kind of chasing a guy too in there, weren't you? Oh yes, I, obviously. <laughs> no, I wasn't really. I just got on really well with the guys in the, in the club. Um, you know, they they took me in, into into the club with no problems, and and I liked all of them. And you know, we had great fun together. Back in the sixties, was it common? Were there other women in the club? There were some other women in the club. And also I found the Women's International Motorcycle Association, WIMA, um, in, that was going strong in England. I mean, it still is. It's now going even stronger around the world. Um, and so I got made contacts through, the, through that um, organization as well. Yeah. So th this was the time, I guess, where, where they were doing the cafe racer thing? Well... Yes, it was. Um, they had the mods and rockers. Right, mods and rockers. That's, that's what I was trying to think of. We, we had um, we had the fellow on from uh, the Ace Cafe, and uh, oh, yes, he, yes. he told the story about that. Yes. It's quite interesting. It's quite a motorcycle history because in the UK, you guys have a real, uh, I don't know, re real uh, deep history with motorcycling that's quite interesting and, and somewhat different than North America. Well, yes, you see, um, in North America, you all had cheap cars, you know, the guys, the young fellas could go out and get a cheap, cheap motor car. Um, it, that wasn't the way in England. If you wanted transport, you had to have a motorbike. You couldn't afford a car. And um, all of the guys, they would say they were apprentices, mainly in our club, you know, the young fellas, teenagers mainly. And, and they, could, they didn't have the money to have a car. So they bought motorbikes and of any, any type of motorbike, you know, but in those days it was Triumph, BSAs, Nortons. The, the Japanese breakthrough hadn't come then. Um, when <laughs> the first guy in our club who bought a, a 250 Honda, we laughed at him and we bought him bags of rice <laughs> to feed his bike on. <laughs> but then it wasn't that far down the road that, that, that they were all Japanese bikes. That's right. They took over. And, um, and there was only one guy in our club who had a BMW because he was rich. <laughs> um, and, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we looked at BMWs as being out, way out of our price range. Um, and, and so it was mainly everybody had, I mean, my first, my first motorbike was um, a 250 side valve BSA. 
And the second one was a, a 200cc Triumph Tiger Cup. And then I gradually went up to a 350 Triumph and a 500 Triumph. And then finally, finally, years later, I got a BMW. But it was a second-hand BMW, and it was an old uh, R60, about 19, I think it was a 60 model, 1960 R60. So, you know, we we just made do with what we had. And, and if... And if you wanted to go road racing, then you, you know, you put on road racing tires. If you wanted to go scrambling, you changed it and put on off-road tires and changed the handlebars and things like that. Use the same bike to do all sorts of things. Yeah, that's, there's something, I, I don't know, nostalgia, I guess, but but there's something um, sort of pure about those times when you look back at that, when you're using the same bike to do different things. It, it seemed to me that there was a lot more, a lot more emphasis on your skill than on what fancy suspension oh, you could yeah. afford. Well, that's right. And and people, as I say, because most people were were apprentices or nobody had that much money, we couldn't afford all these fancy bikes and all this fancy gear. You know, we, we just made do with duffel bags on the tank and you know, we didn't have all these. Um, well, they started off having a few, a, a few, um, fiberglass panniers but that was really down the down the line you know I didn't bother to begin with I just had something strapped onto the back seat and and on the tank you know so we we didn't have all those things and well you know I'm nostalgic for those days (laughs) (laughs) I really am (laughs) I don't know if that happens with age or or is that just because of the way the market's gone and I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer that yeah I can't really answer that can I (laughs) the BMW you mentioned the BMW was it really that much more of a high quality machine than the bikes you were riding oh yeah definitely in the old days you know German engineering was considered the ultimate but but not now. No, not now. You know, th- no, things have now. changed a lot. But back then, the, yeah. the bikes that you're talking about, you're riding, they're really sort of substandard. That's why the Japanese came in and, and really scooped the market because they had a bike that <laughs> that was reliable. I, I chuckled, but it it's true. It was reliable. Well, it, didn't, it didn't leak oil like all the Triumphs and Beezers used yeah, to leak yeah. oil. Spent our, our, our weekends replacing gaskets, you know, leaking primary chains and things like that. So, yeah, yeah it was different. You mentioned about um, you started traveling through this club. Did you, like before you got into motorcycles, were you a traveler? Um, well, no, I got into motorcycles pretty quickly. I, I bought, you know, I got on the road. I wanted to get a car as soon as I possibly could. Um, as soon as I could had was of age to take a license, um, I, I took a car test. But say the original car I had actually only gave me um, a a motorcycle license, but I took another one for a car. I wanted to travel around England, and I did. Um, the first couple of years before I got a bike, I'd travel around England with in my car um, because I just wanted to go exploring. Hmm. Where did that come from? The desire to go exploring. <laughs> What's that? I don't know. Oh. I really don't know. Um, yeah, my parents weren't. Uh, they hadn't really. The only time they'd been out of the country was my father was in the RAF and he had to go training um, in Canada. I believe he went training in Canada and um, and then he was stationed in Egypt when he was when he was flying. Um, and that's it's the only time that they went out of he went out of the country. My mum didn't, you know, she before they were married she was stuck at home and and then as soon as he got back after the war they started breeding. So they didn't they didn't go overseas, you know, not mm. for a long time. You, yeah. Do you consider the motorcycle like? Are you a motorcyclist first or a traveler first? Oh, I don't know. I mean, probably a traveler. Um, but I, 
you know, where I found out very quickly that, that motorcycling was the way to go, you know, was the, the easiest way to travel, the cheapest way to travel. And, uh, and I say, a lot of friendship, you know, from, um, from people around. But you have that, that real deep love of motorcycles, I know. Yeah, well, I, well, I did, yeah, after I'd been around a bit. <laughs> and, and things have progressed through the years. How old are you now? Am I allowed to ask that? Oh, you can. Um, actually, next week's my birthday and I'll be 74. 74. And you're still riding now. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, what, no problem. What's, what's progressed for you? Because, you know, the thing is, the reason I ask that, and you, you answer, well, of course I am. That's a silly, almost a silly question. But there's so many people that worry about riding past, you know, 50, 60 sort of thing. They're, they're thinking that maybe those years will be the end for them. What what sort of progression have you had through the bikes that you've owned? Like, you know, you started out with your, uh, your 250s and you went up from there. And I know you went back down. Can you sort of talk about that? Well, I went up, yes, I went up to the BMWs. I had 600 BMWs for years. And then when I was doing my overland trip, um, what's 13 years ago now, to 2005 to 2007, um, I wanted to ride from Spain over to Australia. And my old BMW, I had a 1978 R60-7. It was it was just too old. Um, you know, was, I mean, I, I used it all the time, but it was um, – to do a long trip like that, it, it really needed. Um, well, it was it was going to be breaking down. It was going to be worn worn out, and it was also very thirsty with petrol and oil. So um, I decided to get another bike, and um, I met a couple of other Wimmer girls who had um, these. Um, what was it? Suzuki uh, DR DR six fifty, and um, and they recommended those, and I thought, oh, um, they are lighter. They're single cylinders, you know. But I, so I, I bought one because another couple of friends of mine were, were going to go overland and and use them. So in, in initially, I was going to go with them, and I thought if we all have the same bike. So I bought one of those, but <clears throat> and I used it, and I was on the road for two years with it. But but really, really, it was far too big for me, too tall. Um, they had it lowered. They, my friends up in Germany prepared it for me, uh, lowered the seat and lowered the suspension. Um, but but it's a single cylinder and it's really sort of top heavy, you know, and and it fell over all the time because oh, we had to make put a shorter side stand on it when we lowered it and um, it would just fall over all the time. And when I was sort of going around in circles, you know, doing a U-turn or something, the the centre of gravity, the weight would carry me away. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love the way you say it, it fell over. Most people refer to that as they dropped the bike, but you just say, yeah, it just fell over. Yeah, well it, well, it did fall over. Sometimes I wasn't on it when it fell over. Oh, it's just on the side stand. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'd, I'd parked it and then I'd walk away and then I'd hear this crash and I'd look <laughs> around and there it was on the ground. And I couldn't pick it up by myself. It was too big and, and I had all my overland luggage on it, you know. I had panniers on it and all sorts of things. Um, so it was, it was really, <laughs> it was really unsuitable and I had it, I didn't have it packed well either. I packed it like I used to pack my BM and that was completely wrong for this bike. What do you mean? Because the center of gravity was different, you know? What do you mean? Everything on top? Yeah, I had, with my BMW, I used to have a top box on the back and then I put the tent on top of the top box and, and I did that with this and it was, it was just too tall, you know, mm. but the BM could take it because the BM had the pots down the bottom, you know, and it, and it equal all equaled out. But with this Suzuki, it didn't equal out at all. 
I spent, I actually wrote a song about, you know, falling off all the time. You rode for two years on this DR650 that you couldn't pick up by yourself when you're traveling. What do you do? You just wait till somebody comes along to help you pick it up? Well, if you're going through Europe and, and Asia, there's no problem because there's loads of people. It's only when I came to Australia that I was getting into problems because there's no people here, you know, in the outback. So in, in Asia, it was everybody you know, rushed over to pick me up. Madam, why are you riding this big motorbike? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they all came and picked me up. You know, it's no problem over there. But say over here, that's why I've decided to downsize um, because now I've come to live back here. Um, and also I have I've got less less muscle power now. And I've, I've also shrunk a couple of inches, I think, because my mum shrank a couple of inches. And now I think I've shrunk a couple of inches as well. Mm. So I think I'm, I'm a thing. I used to be five foot two. I think I'm probably at li- only five foot one now. Mm. <laughs> and it's more difficult. I found it more difficult to get on the bike. I went down from the 650. Um, I went down to a 250. I bought a Super Sherpa in Pennsylvania. And I brought that back to Australia and I was riding that around for a while. Um, But again, you know, I was finding it when I fell off it, if I dropped it in the mud or something, I couldn't pick it up. Um, We made a, a, the guys at the men's shed here, they helped me make a a sort of lever uh, to pick it up with if if I dropped it. And that's fine if you drop it on level ground, um, you know, and bitumen. But if you drop it on in the mud or the sand and the ground's unlevel, I just couldn't do it. So I thought, no, I can't. I can't be doing with this. So I went. I've sold that, and I've just done a little 110 Honda now. What they call a posty bike. You know, people use posty bikes to travel around on now. They're all the rage. Mm-hmm. Well, it was wasn't particularly a rage for me, except that I couldn't find anything else. I like that. I want to jump back to the lever thing. I, I like the idea because I was just talking with somebody about a, a lever setup, and I've thought about that many times, making a, a lever to just make it easier to pick your bike up. But so a lever, what was this lever like? Can you describe it? Um, they put either side on the on the back footrest, we made a sort of like a tube that sort of stood up, a tube um, that you could put another tube into, you know. We just had, had a small we just had a little small tube of about six inches high on put on the back footrest, so either side, so depending which side you were going to fall off. And then I had a tube that I carried on the back of the bike long ways across the seat, which would be about oh, two or three foot long, and just go across the back of the seat where, where my camping gear and everything was. And then if I fell over, I would take that tube out and slot it into – slotted into the tubes on the side and then use it um you you hot that so that's on the use that with the left hand the right hand you've got on your handlebar your bottom's up against the you know your backs to the bike up against the seat and you use that your right hand and your left hand as the levers and you push with your bottom and and stand the bike up that way it's Mm. good you know it's great and i can't it is it is on the internet somewhere but i'm I don't ask me where, but people have seen it and they have, they have used it. I think. Mm, yeah, that's exactly what the the style that I was thinking about. Um, I, mm. I thought it'd be a, quite a good way to pick it up. So, so you progress now to the posty bike. The posty bike is mm. the. Um, it's basically a, a heavy duty scooter. 
Well, it's a step through, except mine's not step through because I've got a big tank on it. So it looks like a, just a little bike with a big tank. So I've got the 400, I've got a 400 kilometer range now because I've got the, the normal tanks under the seat. And then I've got a tank put up a new, you know, off another Honda, which, which holds um, about 10 litres. The one under the seat holds about six litres, I think, and this one holds 10 litres. So it's got a big range. So is this reliable like a motorcycle for you? Yeah, very reliable. It's just, it's just too slow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not supposed to be for riding, you know, across Australia. They're supposed to be riding around the, around the local, um, you know, the local suburbs delivering mail. Right. That's what they're made for. And Honda have made millions of them. They're the, the biggest um, production line in the world for posty bikes. Hondas have made them for years for the Australian Post. And now the older type ones, which is one I've got, um, they're, in, they're in great demand because they're very reliable. They're sort of indestructible. Um, they're just made, they're not made for going around motorways. They're made for bumping up and down pavements, you know, and driveways and so you can throw the mail in. Um, so they're, they're just not supposed to be fast. And, and really, they only do about 80 kilometers an hour flat out. You know, you can go downhill with the wind behind you. You might get 90 kilometers an hour, but um, normally you'd cruise about 70 kilometers an hour, and that's really boring. <laughs> if, you, if you've got, you know, 1,300 kilometers of straight road. Well, especially, yeah, if it's straight and flat, yeah. Then yeah, it gets, yeah, yeah, yes, it's boring, boring. So, um, yeah, so, and I get backache on it if I'm, if I get cold. I did a trip not long ago where I went up to one of the women, um, women world relay things and I went up about 300 kilometers to meet them and it was really cold and, oh, it was, it was horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not running heated gear on this, I, I assume. Yeah, I had, well, I had all my gear on, but you know, I just get colder these days. So, um, yeah. So I'd rather have when I go away. When I was in, um, when I went over to South America um, a couple of years ago, I had a oh, it's four years ago now actually. I got a one two five Yamaha, and beautiful little bike, really lovely, um, which would sit on a hundred kilometres an hour, no problem all day, and and I really loved it. It was a nice bike. And then when I was over in Malaysia last year, I had a I did hire a little one two five. Or was it? It might have been smaller, but it was it was faster than than my posty, and you don't need fast bikes in Asia. Obviously, you don't need fast bikes in Asia because mm -hmm. there's not enough. You know, there aren't all these long straight roads with no traffic, so you you have to be a bit careful over there. But I really enjoy riding those small bikes because they're good fun. Like your posty bike, why is it good fun? Um, well, they're good fun. The, the, the posty bike's okay around town, you know, because throw it around and everything. It's it's a quite a, you know, an agile little bike. It's just out on a long straight road that it's bought. And do you have this all set up with like panniers and things on it? Yeah, I've got I've got the posty panniers. Yeah. Hmm. You know, over here, the post, the post office provides these big, big bright yellow panniers that are sort of, um, uh, sort of plasticky and they're waterproof and for, for putting the post in. And I was lucky that this friend of mine managed to get me some posty panniers so I can carry a lot of stuff on it, a lot, a real lot of stuff. But I try not to, when I go away, I, I really don't take a lot of things with me. You know, I try not to overload my bike and me. 
you mentioned um, when we were talking about back in the day when, when you were getting started with riding back in the 60s mm. and, and 70s and, and how gear wasn't, um, you couldn't afford to, the, you know, the real fancy gear and there wasn't near what there is today. But you yeah. don't go out and buy that kind of gear even today, do you? Oh, certainly not. <laughs> certainly not. You know, I'm on a pension. <laughs> no, just explain your style. <laughs> explain your style that you have for, for packing and for, for your bike gear. Well, I do have some motorcycle jackets. You know, I've got I've got a sort of waterproof jackets and trousers. But normally in the summer, um, I just ride with a pair of jeans on. You know, like um, thick jeans. And then I've got a, a, a if it's if it's in a really hot country that I'm going to, I just take a very light lightweight um, cotton jacket with me, and uh, lightweight gloves. And I don't wear the motorcycle jacket. I just wear this lightweight cotton jacket because if you're going to be stuck in 30, 40 degrees heat, you know, you don't want all that stuff on. And, um, yeah, and I just wear – I've got a pair of, of suede boots that uh, I got at a secondhand shop for about $3, and I wear them for boots. And then when, I've, when I'm travelling, I t- you know, if somewhere I'd take a tent and sleeping bag and uh, – and a Thermarest mat with me, and I take some cooking gear. I've just got a little methylated spirit stove. It's very lightweight and doesn't take up much room. And, you know, my tent, and that's all I need. I don't take much at all. Oh, you know, clothing, you just take a couple of pairs of knickers and a couple of T-shirts and a um, thermal vest or something. Just very lightweight stuff with me. And if you run out, I mean, around here, um, if you run out of, of clothes or you need another jumper or something, which I have done on a couple of occasions I haven't got enough stuff, you just stop at the second-hand shop and buy another jumper. And that way you put your money back into travel? Yeah. Yeah, I don't spend any money on on uh, gear. I just spend it on, on travel. Yeah. So you said you started traveling way back in the, you know, when you first started getting into motorcycling, I, I guess in the late 60s. Uh, mm. how, how much traveling have you done? Wow, that's tough. To, that's <laughs> tough to really put out there, isn't it? I mean, without without listing them all, but maybe that's but, what you have to do. Sort of give me a rundown on. Well, I've done all the five continents now on by motorcycle. Um, I the first, you know, I did went around Europe in the sixties. I went around Europe and I got as far as Russia, you know, behind the Iron Curtain and places like that in the sixties, and then. I actually emigrated to Australia in sixty nine and took my bike with me, and so I spent. Oh, about two, two or three years in Australia, traveling around, around Australia by bike. And then I went back to UK and then I went down through Africa, 74, 75, down through Africa on my BMW. And then um, I went back to Australia at some stage. And then I went over to America and I bought a little Honda in America and toured around North America in 83, I think that was. Then um, where did I go? I can't remember, but a couple of couple of years ago, I wanted to be in. I went. I went overland from Spain to Australia in two thousand and five to two thousand and seven. I was nearly two years on the road on this DR six fifty. So I went all through about twenty eight different countries, and then um, and then I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in Bolivia for my 70th birthday, so I went over to South America and bought a bike in Chile. And I was three months touring around in Chile and uh, Argentina and um, didn't get to Peru. Um, what's the other one? Bolivia, Argentina and Chile. And then, 
yeah. So I know last year I went over to um, over to Malaysia, but I had already been to Malaysia when I did my overland trip. So I've, I've you know, I've done all of, all the continents. I haven't done all of all the continents, but I've done quite a bit of all all the continents. What I could do, and um, I'm going to go to Japan from next year for my 75th I'm determined to be in Japan because I haven't been there yet and of course there's Wimmer girls in Japan so I'll, I'll get a bike and I'll travel around Japan for a couple of months Wimmer the the International Women's Motorcycle yeah, Association yeah yeah that's right yeah is that been your main contact is, is that how I'm sort of curious how you how you end up traveling like you're traveling alone mm. how do you make contact is it through Wimmer well, through Wimmer and through Horizons Unlimited, since I've since I've been involved with Horizons Unlimited, which has been for about I don't know six or seven years, I've done several talks for when they've had when they've had meetings over here. So I've I've made if I'm going to go to a country where I'm not sure. Um, that's right. I went to Uganda the year before last. I went to Uganda and um, I I contacted an H, HU fellow in Kampala. And I asked him if he could help me buy a bike over there, and he said, "Yeah, no problem." So I and I there weren't any Wimmer girls in in Uganda, but there was an HU contact. So um, yeah, through those. And actually, I've got friends around the world because I've travelled, and I keep try and keep in contact with them. So when you're planning to do something, you can you've got somebody you can get a hold of and ask some questions. Yeah. Yeah, and if I say if I don't know anybody, I go through and I, I use Horizons Unlimited or, or Wimmer to find a contact. You um, you sort of mentioned there you, that you went to Malaysia. That was last year. How long were you there yeah. for? Um, I was just there for a month. I was just there for a month because I went mainly for this girl's birthday and, um, and I just um, hired a bike for a month in Penang. a few things to share with you on this break that we're going to take right now that may help you plan your next year well adventures but stay with us because when we come back we got more to talk about with linda including her secret to moto travel stay with us Well, the best way to become a better rider you know to increase your skills is to get professional instruction now, Moto Discovery has been doing adventure trips since 1981, so they've been around for a long time. They now have a rider training program called Immersion Training. Now, the idea here is, and this is really good, it's great to get a weekend of instruction, but you need to take that instruction and then build it into muscle memory. And that's the immersion part of what Moto Discovery's immersion training is all about. They first teach you the skills, then you head off and practice those skills on a real adventure, building what you've learned into muscle memory. And that's the key element right there. Muscle memory means you do it automatically. You don't have to think about it because it's one thing to learn the skill and understand the mechanics behind it, but it's another to have it so it's automatic. So you don't have to think about it. You think about the other things you have to deal with. And to do it in a real world adventure, that gives you an adventure. It also gives you some dynamics to it. So you're not on a static course. You're out there in the real world dealing with what comes at you. And in this case, it's Moab, a fantastic place to do this in. Seven days, six nights. They've got dates in June and September. So it's best to book as fast as you can on this. Treat yourself for next year. Get yourself in training. Immersion training with motodiscovery.com. When you're dealing with them, anytime you're just inquiring, just make sure that you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's motodiscovery.com.
Overland Expo is the biggest overland event in North America where thousands of like-minded adventurers gather to talk and learn and exchange information and ideas and to teach others what they've learned on the road, all in three days of intense fun. And I've heard so much great feedback about these shows. They've got a new venue that they added this year. So the first one coming up is May 15 to 17. That's in Arizona. The next one is the new venue. It's called Mountain West, Overland Expo Mountain West. It's in Loveland, Colorado, August 28th to 30th. And then the east one is in Arrington, Virginia in October, 9 to 11th of October. Three days of overland travel immersion, including tons of motorcycle-specific presentations, exhibitors, instruction, skills courses. You can camp at the show. There's just so much going on here. Buy your tickets online because there are none available at the gate overlandexpo.com is the website. Click on the show that you're interested in, the date you're interested in. Um, You can also apply to present at the show. That's another way to attend. All available at the website. The website actually is is very robust. They've added a lot of things in the past year or so um, to their website. Overlandexpo.com. Don't forget to throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. You know, I don't know if you're hearing it exactly the way I am. Maybe it's because I'm working on the show and I'm doing the editing and stuff, but I do notice that every time we're talking about riding and riding skills, the thing that often comes up, that's often referenced, even just in a casual way, is that connection between your foot and the motorcycle. And I can't stress it enough. I ride on IMS pegs. If you want a quality peg, go to a company that has been around since 1976, a company that puts all their pedigree and all their knowledge into making a foot peg that can withstand not only what we can throw at it as adventure riders, but what a racer can throw at it. And they've got a full line of pegs right on from their ADV 1 and 2, which are beautiful foot pegs for people who like to ride fire roads and long distances. They're comfortable on the highway, yet give you great traction for some dirt riding right on down to their more aggressive, smaller foot pegs. The website is imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, just throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Is that what you do now? I think you mentioned that you now when you're traveling, you're not flying a bike from one place to another. You're just renting something. Well, it depends. So because so, I was going to be three months in, in South America, I bought a bike because it was worthwhile. I bought one and then I sold it when I left. But if, it, if I'm only going for a month and it, in Asia, you can hire these little bikes for about eight dollars a day. So what's the point, you know, of buying anything? Mm. And uh, if you hire a bike and it breaks down, well, you you know, you just say, come on, give me another one. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was, in, I was in Thailand a few years ago. Um, yeah, I got banned from for speeding over here in my car and I was had to be, ba- I was banned for three months. So I thought, well, I'm not going to be off the road here for three months. It's impossible to live in Australia. Wait a second. I, I got to get this story. You got banned in Australia for driving your car. How, how did this happen? Well, I don't know how it works over there, but in England and here, you have, if you get done for speeding, you lose so many points and, or you get done for not having a seatbelt on, you lose so many points off your license and you're allowed to lose 12 points in three years. And if you lose them all within that three years, they ban you. You have to come off the road for three months and, um, so I got done, you know, in that, during that time. I lost all my points. So I thought, well, in that case, um, I'll just get 
I'll just go overseas <laughs> and ride over there. So I went over to Thailand for a couple of months and um, and hired a bike over there and had a great time. I was really, really happy. So, um, yeah, so I went over and I, I hired a little 125 and I went around Thailand. And so that's what you have to do, yeah. And now I've, it's it's sort of happened again. <laughs> I've lost all my points again because after the three months ban, you get your points back. <laughs> but then I lost them all again, <laughs> and now I'm on special behaviour. I have if I have to be, um, I've got one point left, and uh, they've given me one point back. And if I lose that within the next year, then I'm banned for six months. In which case, I definitely have to leave, leave the country. <laughs> You're 74, 74, you're retired. What are you in such a hurry for? No, this, they're really, really strict over here. If you're in a 50 zone, a 50 kilometer zone, you know, in the, in the town or something, and you're doing 55, that's it. You've lost your points. Oh, you'll wow. find four, $400, $400 and you lose your, you know, and you lose your points. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And they're wow. everywhere and they have all these, um, especially in Adelaide, in our city, they've got all these um, cameras, you know, everywhere. These cameras are everywhere. I mean, you don't even know you've been done until you come home and a couple of weeks later you get this thing in the post that says, you know, please give us $400 and you've lost another three points. For five kilometres over? Yeah, anything. Yeah, it's wow. unbelievable. I, can I mean, I've went around, the, you know, I've been all the way around the world for driving for 50 years at 55 years, and it's only in South Australia in the last six years that I've been caught, you know. Have they stepped it up in, the, in, in just recent years? Yeah, they have. They have. And they've put, up, they put the fines up and they've, you know, they've got more cameras around. So you've got to be very careful here. Well, I've really learned straight. something here. I, I hadn't thought of that before. If I lose my license in my country, I just go to another country while I have my license suspended and then come back. I like this. This is good. Yeah, good idea, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but I must be careful. I really must be careful because I need my car. I need my car because I'm a musician. I have to carry all my, my instruments around with me and I can't do that on the motorbike and I, and I can't do it. You know, you lose your license, you lose you lose the car and you lose the bike. You, know, you can't, can't drive either mm. of them. Is the car a fairly new thing for you? No, no. I've had always, always, always had cars. Mm, always. So the bike's a secondary thing for you? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You were to Malaysia before this was your, your return trip sort of to Malaysia. How do you figure out where you're going to stay? Well, as I say, I got in touch with them. Um, I was lucky. I got in touch with this guy from um, the HU people. And he helped me. Um, he lent me his little bike to go back into Penang to look around for finding a place for another bike. And he put me in touch with other people around. And also, I mean, I do carry, if I get hold of a Lonely Planet guide, if I'm going to stay in some of the smaller hostels around the country. I looked up and I went around to some of the towns and I stayed in hostels. I don't think, if I remember, I didn't take... I didn't bother to take a tent this time because I knew I was going to be staying with a lot of people and I, and the hostels are cheap. But otherwise you're still camping then? Um, in other countries I camp, yeah. When I went to South America, I took my tent with me. and I, Not that I needed it very much because people were so hospitable. They mainly invited me to come and stay at their place. But I did camp a few times in the Atacama Desert and everything, you know. <laughs> When you're when you're planning the trip, like for instance in Malaysia, did you set out a route? Would you you know sort of get there and you know in advance you're going to go here and there and there and you're going to stay at this hostel? Is everything really planned? 
No, I never plan anything, Jim. <laughs> I'm the most unplanned person. <laughs> um, no, I knew I was going to go to this party in Penang. I knew that I was going to meet some people around that area. And then I knew that Noor, who is the Wimmer uh, representative, she lived north of Penang, um, a couple of hundred kilometres north. And I got in touch with her. So I knew I'd be going to see her. And then she took me on a run over to the over to the east coast and um and then um then i just looked at the the lonely planet guide and planned my route around down the west coast um no sorry the east coast i went down the east coast but i had been there before i had a vague idea of of where i was going and i don't mind getting lost you know it doesn't worry me to get lost you're not using a gps no 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 like you no. you refuse to use a gps well it's well, it's too difficult, isn't it? <laughs> you, you've got well, to keep these things plugged in and charged. And I don't think it's difficult nowadays, Linda. I think I think it's I think it's pretty simple. Well, it's much nicer to stop and ask somebody the way, because then you have contact with the local people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so much nicer to say, "Look, I I don't really know where I'm going, and can you?" Can you tell me? And then, you know, they start chatting to you and you meet more people. And you, and you discover more on your trips. I mean, and I guess, the, uh, you know, the, the more we isolate ourselves with our GPS and all the other gear that we have on us, we can go from one hostel to the next or hotel to the next and, and really not speak with anybody if we don't want to. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. What, what are you looking for when you're traveling? Well, I'm looking at the countryside. I'm looking for the people. Um, so I'm just, just looking to have a, a nice time. <laughs> you know, just I, I enjoy meeting different people. I enjoy looking at different countryside and finding out the history about place. I mean, amazing history in, in Malaysia. You know, the um, um, my, one of the highlights of my trip was coming across um, a tin dredge, huge tin dredge, which because in, in those days the, the tin industry was huge and the English had actually mechanised it. It started off with the Chinese coming over and digging for tin, but the, when the Brits found it was there, they came over and they brought all these enormous tin dredges that were made in England and they had them shipped out there and then they were dredging a, along the valleys. And, of course, rubber as well, rubber plantations they had in those days. So finding finding all the remnants of this old, you know, sort of the time when the Brits were there and this whole different culture going on was amazing. Um, yeah, I just love finding that out about, you know, history of places. How do you find this place when you hear about this, this old tin, I think you call it tinnerage? Tin, uh, tin dredge, tin a dredge, dredge when uh. they dredged up the, um, no, I did look in the, the Lonely Planet Guide gives you an idea, um, of, of things to go and have a look at. Um, and you can ask, you know, if there's any, if there are any information centres, which is sometimes the ho- the hostels that you stay in, if they're geared up for tourists, they will tell you the local things to see. I mean, down near Ipo, there are a lot of caves, you know, they're, um, they're sort of Buddhist caves and things like that, you know. It's amazing, just absolutely amazing. Um what the things that you can find, and you just have to ask, you know, because I'm, I'm not backward in coming forward and asking about things and finding my way around at all. Because I mean, I'm a sort of, 
fairly non-threatening person look to look at. <laughs> they might have found a bit different later, but no, I mean, I mean I'm just a little, <laughs> I'm a little grey-haired old lady, you know. I mean, who's going to be worried about talking to me? <laughs> well, you're not that old, Linda. You're only 74. Come on now. Yeah, yeah, the, but the they, lo- you know. <laughs> the Lonely Planet Guide, I, I, I hear some people just, you know, absolutely hate that because it's overrun. Every place you go to that's listed in there is overrun. Do you find that? Well, I agree with you. I agree with you, but I'm not looking, I'm not really worried about, you know, um, I'm not following it slavishly. If I find a, I haven't got anybody to stay with in a place and I need a hotel or, you know, a guest house, I don't stay in hotels, but somewhere cheap, then I look in, in the guide to see what I can find. Um, and sometimes I've I've gone to one, um, I think in Thailand I used it a bit and I went to one and then I didn't like the place. So I just, once I'd stayed the night and I was in the town and I'd sussed out the town, I'd walk around the town and then I'd find somewhere else to go, you know. Mm. Um, But having, if you're coming into a town in the afternoon, you've got to find somewhere to stay that night. You just go to somewhere where where you can spend the night and then you can look around later. So when you come into a town, do you have a, a method that you use each time to find the place to stay? Um, I mean, it depends on the time of the day. Uh, if if it's during the time of the day and they've got there is an information centre there, some of them have them, some of them don't. Obviously, it depends which country you're in. I can go to an information centre and find um, uh, get a map. And I can ask them, you know, where are there any cheap places to stay um, or if there's a campsite. It depends, you know, it just depends on where I am. Or otherwise, I have, if I've got, if I've got the Lonely Planet Guide with me and it gives me some idea of cheap places to stay then, yeah, um, I'll, I'll look at that and find that out, yeah. If I was to ask um, what you think the keys are to your to successful travel for, for motorcyclists, for people who are looking to do the same sort of things that you do, would you have some and what would they be? Mm. Well, um, a lot of people are sort of worried about going to strange places because they don't speak the language and they're, you know, they they don't know if their bike's going to break down and all this sort of thing. I I think you've got to go, you've got to go with a positive attitude. You've got to go with the attitude that it, everything's going to be okay. And if it isn't okay, they'll find somebody to help them. Um, and you've got to be. You've got to be kind to other people and be uh, outgoing with other people. Having a smile on your face really helps. I think you know, I wrote that book called Into Africa with a Smile. Um, you, you, you've just got to have belief in, in other people and not be frightened of them. A lot of people are really frightened of, of Islam, you know. I mean, I had the most amazing time when I was in Iran and Pakistan. They were so good to me. The people were so good to me and so open and they invited me into their homes. They not, you know, they were far better than European people or Australian people, you know, because they, they weren't frightened. <laughs> they weren't frightened and they, and they were so outgoing, you know, and helpful. Um, and if you haven't, you know, that they don't want to guard all, all their possessions like we do over here oh if i if i have that strange person come into my house they might run off with the silver <laughs> you know you they don't think like that you know they it's part of their culture to welcome strangers into their homes and look after you and i think you know that's the, the best 
a thing I think is to say, think positive, be outgoing and, you know, be nice to people and, and they'll be nice to you. I'm thinking as, you, as you're talking here about um, the way you travel and you just sound like you, you're just so easy going about it and you sound like you're, you you really get what you want from your trips. Is part of that, um, do you think, is part of that because you're not traveling with expensive gear? Because you just mentioned about the thing where you have someone come to stay at your home and you're worried about your stuff, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, Western worlders you know, tend to worry about a lot. And then mm-hmm. even when you go somewhere, you know, you worry about the stuff on your bike and, and the gear and all the little farkles that you've, you've bolted to your bike and you, you worry about people stealing them or somebody trying to do something to them. Do you think that part of your relaxed um, feeling is the fact that you don't have that? Well, yes. And the thing is, I'm always losing things and usually it's my own fault. You know, I was over in, um, where was I, in Randa when I was went to Uganda and I went in down to Randa and I I carry I always carry my money belt on me with so the the main things you know my bank cards and my my passport and driving license they're all right on my body right next to me underneath my jumpers and things like that but I always have a bag over my shoulder that I can get to quickly that's got um uh uh got a you know writing pad and my address book and my tin whistle for playing and um and in this case I actually had a phone in there <laughs> a mobile phone <laughs> and I um I, w- I stopped somewhere to go and have a cup of tea and I came back to the bike and I was having to fiddle around with the bike because I'd had a new ignition switch put on and it wasn't working properly and I just put the bag down on the ground while I was fiddling around with this switch and then this guy came up to talk to me and he was helping me and he was fiddling around with the switch as well. And finally, we, the bike started. I managed to turn the ignition on and I went, oh, merci bien, monsieur. And I jumped on the bike and rode off and I got two minutes up the road and I realised I hadn't picked my bag up. Mm. And I went back and, of course, it had gone. It had gone with all those <laughs> things in it. <laughs> and I was so angry with myself. Fortunately, I hadn't lost the camera. The camera was in my pocket, but I lost the camera later. About about a week later, it dropped out of my pocket. I'm always losing things and it's always my own fault. Um, but, you know, the only things that I always have close to me are on my money belt, you know, the most important things, your passport and, um, and, and your bank cards and driving license. You always, you never, ever have those in separately. But everything else you can always replace it, you know. It's. Uh, I mean, I had to go and, and buy something while I was over there. I had to go and buy a new bag. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go into a shop and buy a new bag to put things in, you know. But I really, I've learnt on all my on all my trips, I've managed to lose something. So um, uh, I don't buy expensive cameras. I only have these little $100 cameras. I think on my overland trip, I got through four of them. <laughs> I either, either lost them or they got stolen or they packed up. I got through four cameras. So I don't, you know. So you're not getting I'm a lot of too- photos. I got a lot of photos. Yeah, but yeah, you're but leaving I, the photos all around the world. Yes, that's right. Somebody must be having a, a good time <laughs> looking at my photos. <laughs> yeah. What do you think we should fear with, with motorcycle travel? Oh, it's a hard one. Um, I think you've got to fear you've got to fear yourself. And and in that in that respect, I would say that when I did my overland trip and I was nearly two years on the road, I when I finished the 
by the time I finished the trip and arrived in Northern Australia, I was a physical and mental wreck. Um, and, you know, I just wasn't even thinking straight by the time I got there. If you've got to look after yourself and you've got to give yourself uh, sufficient rest and, um, I mean, it does, doesn't worry me what I eat, but some people are a bit finicky about what they eat, but you've got to look after your health and your mental health. So you've got to fear yourself in that respect um, because whatever you do, it's your decisions that make or break a trip. So really, you have to be very careful about the way you think about things. How do you mean? Talk more about that. Oh. <laughs> well, for well, instance, as I said, you said I you, was, were, you, were, you were an emotional wreck. Why? Yeah. Well, because I'd been two years on the road, two years looking after my bike by myself, watching all my gear, making sure the bike was still going, you know, everywhere, going through different countries where um, I didn't know the countries, I didn't know the language, so I'd have to try and try and make myself, you know, understood and try and learn a bit of language here and there. And I was didn't know ev any night in that particular trip. I really hardly knew any night where I was going to be staying that night. So you're looking for somewhere to stay, looking for somewhere to camp or something. So you, you're actually under pressure um, all the time. And, and it does wear you down. It does wear you down. I mean, several other I actually did a talk at the uh, HU last year sometime about the psychology of long-distance riding and talked to different people about, you know, how they've done it and how they prepare for it. And um, so, and, and of course, I lost weight because I was, you know, I was just exhausted with pushing the bike around. I could hardly hold the bloody thing up by the time <laughs> I got – I'd gotten down to about 46 kilos by the time I got to – to northern northern Australia, so the, this huge bike that I'm pushing around. That's the DR650. Yes, and 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 I really, I, I'd got you know you sort of got there. I got to Australia, but I still di I didn't really know what I was going to do with myself when I got there. So, um, and I I wasn't thinking straight, and I you know was yeah was horrible so that's what you you've got to be aware of you've got to be very very careful about how how you plan your trip so that you can um get some time where you can relax and and it's of course you you spend all that time away from your normal life and your normal friends and family i mean okay you've got all this internet business stuff that you can do now but it's not the same as having friends around you that you can relate to um, go and have a chat with if you've got a problem. It's not a, it's not the same as as being amongst friends. You've you've um, you're relating to other people and they might be really nice to you, but they're not your culture, and you've got to be very wary of how you're relating to them. So it, that's the main thing. I think you've got to be careful of, of yourself. Hmm. You mentioned about going into to towns and you know having to find a new place to stay each night, in particular on that trip when you didn't have your places planned out or you didn't know you were going to stay. That That is incredibly stressful, isn't it? Where um, oh, it you, is, you come yeah. in, in the, at the end of the day because you're stuck. You, you've got a time frame there that you need to find a place. Um, and you know, it's, and you don't know anything, you know, you're, so you're, you're right at square one. What, what mm. sort of tools mm. do you use to find a place at, at that point? Well, as I say, you know, I've, I, um, I, if I've got a if I've got a guide with me, I can look at look at that. Otherwise, I ask people. You know, I, I remember some 
some place I went to. I went to the I was in the petrol station, and I said, "Oh, is there a cheap place to stay around here? You know, where would you suggest I went?" And um, yeah, so you just ask people. Hmm. And do you find that stressful actually talking to people and asking them those sorts of questions? No, no, not really. I'm not really frightened of of other people. Um, I think you get some sort of intuition when you're when you're traveling like this, especially being a woman. You get some sort of intuition about who you think would be trustworthy and who wouldn't. And um, if you feel uncomfortable, then you just move on, move away. And especially that's what I think when you've got your own transport. You you're lucky to have your own transport because you can um, you can go away if you don't like a place if you don't like what's happening you just jump on the bike and go and find somewhere else. Not like you came in on a bus or something and you're stuck there. No bus or if you're hitchhiking you, you know you haven't you're reliant on other people you're reliant yeah. on on and you can't get away from that situation and that's why I've always liked having my own transport be it a car or a motorbike then I if I don't feel comfortable I just go. Do you find when you're in, you're in countries where you're you're visibly a tourist? Do you find that to be an advantage or a disadvantage? Um. Uh, well, I think I think it's mainly it's mainly an advantage. I mean, there have been sometimes like when I was in in Iran, when I was in the center of Iran, I can't remember which town it was, but it was a big tourist town, and. Um, Oh, it was a beautiful place, and lots of there were lots of tourists around, and I stuck out, of course, and and all the students kept coming up to me and begging me to talk to them because they were studying English, oh, you know, right. and they really wanted to talk to a real proper English person, and um, and that just became a bit of a hassle in the end because I'm trying to walk around this town and do my own sightseeing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm having to be polite to these kids, but I didn't want to spend hours sitting and talking to them. So in that respect, you know, it, it was a bit of a hassle, but it wasn't dangerous. It was just a bit of a hassle. And, yeah, and, of course, you've got these places where you go, especially places like Morocco where, the, where they're trying to sell you things the whole time. They see you're a tourist and they want to, they want to sell you things. But, uh, you know, as long as you smile politely and say, no, sorry, I don't, really don't want to do this, you don't, have to, you don't have to get into any sort of real sort of serious altercations. You just smile and be nice to people and just be definite, say a definite no. So you're, Mm. you're 74 now you're, you're Mm. already planning. I think you just mentioned two trips that you're planning. Yes. Next year. Yeah. Is there any end in sight for travel? No, not at all. No, no. I mean, I'm very lucky Jim that I am very healthy, but then I do live a healthy lifestyle. You know, I don't eat rubbish and I, um, and I, play you know I play sports I go cycling I play table tennis um, go walking you know and I and I I'm very active I'm mean, something I'm actually missing out on my bicycle ride this morning talking to you because <laughs> <laughs> I go out with a group on Tuesday mornings bicycling um, so I'm, I am I uh, and my mind is always going I've got so many different interests you know I do spinning um, not spinning with bicycles spinning with wool I belong to an art group. I was away last weekend on a, an art retreat for a weekend. So I've, I've got lots of different interests. And so, you know, a great group of friends here. Um, 
But I'm very, very happy when people come and visit me here. Um, any of the Horizons Unlimited, I mean, on their, on their list, if they want to come and stay with me in Port Lincoln and I show them around, you know, I'm quite happy to have people come and stay with me. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that would love to do what you've done with motorcycle travel. Mm. Well, if you, anybody can, you know, you, you can, you just decide to do it. I've just done it all my life and it's, it's sort of natural for me, but I realize that I have done, you know, I have done a lot more traveling than, than a lot of people, but um, it's, it's still possible. I mean, there's so many, so many, so many people are writing books now about um, and public getting them published about where, where they've been and, um, so there's lots of information around, lots of information about traveling and, and possibility with the internet of, of, of talking to people and, and asking them and getting information. It's easier, much easier. Now, I mean, when I went down through Africa in 74, there was no such thing as Lonely Planet or, or any you know, information at all, really. Of, I just went. You would just go and find out for yourself. chatting with Linda. I find her such an inspiration. That was Linda Butherstone Bick from her home in Port Lincoln in South Australia, which I understand is the seafood capital of Australia. Go figure. We've got some photos and links in the show notes for this episode on the website. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much for listening and being a part of Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you to Elizabeth Martin, our producer for the show. And uh, remember, you can you can get all of our episodes while well, anywhere you find podcasts. But we have another show called ARR Raw. If you're not listening to it already, you should probably check it out. You can find that anywhere you get podcasts as well. But both of our, our podcasts, both of those shows are available on our website. And the great thing about the website is that we've got a whole bunch of information in the show notes. Usually some extra little tidbits in there. You have to go and check it out. There's also a spot at the bottom if you have a comment about the show. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have an idea for a show, we'd love to hear that as well. And there's spots to contact us uh, as well on the website. We would love to get your support. The show is built on a model of some advertising and listener support. Uh, We're strong believers in supporting the things that you want to have to listen to, to watch, whatever it is on the internet. And I think it's a model that a lot of people are using now, which I think is is really the future. So we'd love it if you would drop by our website and check out our support page. Anything 10 
$10 or more gets you a sticker sent back at you. And I think $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And we get a bunch of stuff in between. We'd love to get you on our Patreon team there that supports the show each month. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll talk to you next week. Jim Hyde with Rawhide Adventures, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.